So one of the things that I love about Emmanuel uh, is that we come from all kinds of different faith backgrounds, traditions, denominations. There's, there's literally no one on staff who actually grew up in the Covenant Church. There are very few people who even attend the church that grew up in the Covenant Church. We are Lutherans and Baptists and Catholics and Methodists and all these different people, and people that are brand new to faith, who've had, this is the beginning of their faith journey. But for those of us who have come from different backgrounds, you know, the different denominations tend to focus on different things, right? I mean, some people focus on one aspect, one focus on another. The tradition that I grew up in spoke a lot, talked a lot about the idea of the rapture. I mean, it came up a lot. We talked about it a lot. I was talking to Chris about this, and he said, you know, the church I grew up in, never. We never talked about second coming. We never talked about the rapture. It just was a non-subject. I was like, oh, Chris, at my church, we talked about it a lot. We heard sermons about it. We sang songs about it. We watched movies about it. I mean, it was all the time, right? And one of the songs that we sang that was a favorite of mine as a kid, now it seems kind of funny, it was all about the rapture. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It was called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Let me read these words. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind, right? A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. And there's this, this sort of sad, melancholy melody, right? And, and, and frankly, it was kind of a scary song for me as a child. You know, this idea that suddenly we're going to be taken away, right? The film was actually featured very prominently uh, in the 1972 film, A Thief in the Night. Does anyone remember being terrified of that in the 80s when they watched it in youth group, right? It's basically this story, this movie, that is the story of the rapture. It's set in the not-too-distant future, which looks a lot like 1973 when you watch it now, where the news reports suddenly say that millions of people have inexplicably disappeared. They're just gone. The lawnmower's left out in the yard running. The, the, the plane is flying itself. All these different things. These people just suddenly disappear. It's the rapture. And it's a catastrophe for everyone who's left behind. Left behind. They should have called the movie that. Oh, wait, they did. Like 20 years later, and then like five years after that, and I think there's a new one coming out in 2023, actually. But in response to this disaster, there's a new one-world government that's formed called the United Nations Imperium of Total Emergency, or unite. And that one world government forces everyone who's left to take the mark of the beast or be executed. Has anyone seen the movie? Anybody seen this movie? Really? Oh, it's terrifying. You've seen the movie. You showed me the movie. <laughs> I watched it in junior high in youth group, and it's so funny because junior high, I wasn't allowed to watch PG movies, but beheadings were just fine as long as it was like a Christian horror movie, you know? <laughs> right? But it had a desired effect. I mean, I think all of us in that space were kind of terrified, right? And we wanted to know how we could avoid that. It was sort of like evangelism through like sheer terror, to sheer fear, right? I think many of us probably had similar experiences as kids at camp or some sort of hellfire and brimstone message that we heard. And it was meant to elicit fear. You wanted to know how you could avoid, how you could get like fire insurance, a ticket to heaven, right? Simply by praying this simple magical prayer. One of my... I won't say one of my favorite TV shows. A TV show that some people love and other people hate is <laughs> called The Simpsons. 
You've probably heard of it. And they are really, really good at lampooning Christians. Uh, and it bugs you. And you kind of go, but there's a ring of truth in that, actually, right? And there's an episode that's called Thank God It's Doomsday. Uh, and Homer Simpson is out on the street, and he's wearing a, the picketing sign. I think we've got a picture of it here. It says, the end is near. And the news reporter goes to interview him, and he says, funny story, Kent. It's the end of the world. God loves you. He's going to kill you. <laughs> and it's funny. It's tongue-in-cheek. And, and it kind of resembles the message perhaps many of us have sort of heard, this, this mixed message that culture wrestles with. God loves you. He's going to kill you. It's evangelism presented as fear. Right? We have a lot of idioms here at ECC, little sayings that we use. You know Chris, so therefore you know that we have a lot of idioms. And one of them that he uses quite often, he says, fear is a low-octane fuel. And I love that. Fear is a low-octane fuel. Trying to convince someone of something through fear may get a fast and strong reaction. It flares hot, but it tends to burn out quickly. Fear is like the sugar fix of motivations, right? You get this, this huge rush, and then you experience the huge crash. And yet we see fear used all the time as motivation in our politicians, in our elections, in our, in our news media, all over the place, even in religion. People trying to use fear to get people to respond in some particular way. And people do. I think there are two predictable responses that people make when they're exposed to this sort of motivation. One, they get fearful and they embrace whatever it is we want them to embrace. Or two, they get cynical and dismiss it. They get fearful and they embrace Christianity. They pray the prayer, but over time, that urgency that they felt in that moment kind of wanes. The fear fades and they get cynical and dismiss the idea altogether. Friends, I would argue that, that those responses are common and understandable, but they're not, they're not biblical. Fear is a low-octane fuel. It can't sustain you. Like romance to marriage, you, know, you need more than just the passion of the fear, right? But cynicism and dismissal can't save you. We've learned in this series about the, the veracity, the truth of the claims of the gospel, right? The claims of Jesus. Enough that I think it'd be foolish, I think, simply to dismiss it all as myth, to laugh along with the Simpsons at how silly these Christians are for what they believe. I mean, if what Scripture claims is true, if what Jesus said is true, then the stakes are really, really high. I mean, literally, your eternal destiny. <laughs> the stakes don't get a lot higher than that. Part of what we try to do in this series, why Jesus is sort of peel back some of the layers of tradition and religion and maybe even some of the baggage we all kind of bring as this modeled group of people from different faith traditions, to pull it back and look what the Bible really has to say about who Jesus was and is and what he really claimed. How does scripture speak to this idea that Jesus is coming back, like we sang in that, in that first song? How does Jesus talk about the end of time the day of the Lord. When you read through the, the, the gospel accounts of his life and of his ministry and the teachings of Jesus, who, as we learned, is, is proven to have been a historical figure, who, whose statements, whose claims, whose ministry, whose even his miracles were documented and attested, not just by his followers, but even by his enemies. 
As you read through the New Testament accounts of these eyewitnesses, his disciples, his apostles, people who knew him, who corroborate each other's story, but who also have their accounts corroborated by outsiders, people antagonistic to the faith. As you look at the early church, who over the decades after these people who, who literally knew Jesus, who knew his disciples, as you look at their patterns and how they shaped their lives and changed everything about themselves to follow this way, as you look at all these different pieces, you see that there are some themes that begin to emerge. I invite you to write this down. Jesus believed he was going to return. It sounds silly, right? But that was his claim. He said, I'm going to return, and he said it was good news. John 14, uh, one of the passages we looked at, I think a couple of times in the series, Jesus says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, what I've told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. So you'll always be with me where I am. We love passages like this. They're, they're comforting. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. There's no sense of the beast and all those different pieces, right? This feels really, really good. It's not scary. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And there are lots of places where Jesus gives the, the, these very strong warnings, using strong, even scary sometimes language. That the stakes are high. In Matthew 24, the passage we're kind of going to spend the most time in today, Jesus is describing sort of all these cataclysmic events that would precede his return. And some of these are really pretty apocalyptic. I mean, what do we do with that? How do we square that against the God who is love? It feels a little bit like Homer Simpson, right? And so his disciples come back to him and they ask, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Maybe they're curious. Or, or maybe they just want a heads up, right? When, whenever my wife goes out of town for the weekend, you know, to visit her parents or whatever, as she's leaving, I typically ask the question, so when, when do you think you'll be back? And what I want her to hear is, because I will miss you every moment we're apart. <laughs> and then on some level, I do. And another part of me wants to know, can I get a heads up on when you're going to be back so that I can actually make sure the dishes are washed, the clothes is put away, this place doesn't look like a bachelor pad run by monkeys, right? So maybe there's a little bit of that. Like, how will we know when it's time to get ready for this return? That, that sounds so cataclysmic. But Jesus replies, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Wow, so th there's no warning. Nobody knows. Not even the Son knows. That is not much of a heads up, right? And then Jesus goes on. When the Son of Man returns... It'll be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it'll be when the Son of Man comes. Okay, that language is scary, right? That language is cataclysmic. But I want, I want to invite us to just look at it and think a little bit critically, right? Is Jesus' main point in this, that his return is going to wipe out the whole world like the flood did? Or is his point more about the fact that no one knew his coming, 
No one prepared for that coming. And instead, they had ordered their whole lives around parties and festivals and pleasure and pleasing themselves. And all these things took the place of their preparation. Who was the only one that survived? Noah. Because he prepared. He believed what God had said and prepared for that day. Two men will be walking together in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Okay, those are like literally the words from the scary sad song I quoted at the beginning, right? It's scary. It's scary to imagine ourselves in that moment. So you too must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming... He would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You must also be ready all the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. Sometimes it's, in some versions it's like a thief in the night, which is where we got the name of that movie, A Thief in the Night. See, it's like clicking for you. All right. Again, is Jesus' point primarily about the thief? Is Jesus saying, I'm a thief who comes in the night to steal? Well, that, that's language he uses to describe Satan, right? to steal, kill, and destroy. The point of the story is actually about the homeowner. It's about the preparedness of the people. I think Jesus' primary point, even in some of these really scary-sounding texts, his, point, his primary point isn't be afraid. His primary point is be prepared, like Noah was prepared. He's saying this is, this is urgent, always be ready. This place to write this in your notes. There's a big difference between fear and urgency. There's a big difference between living in fear and living in peace, knowing that you've done the work of preparation, of being prepared. It's not that there's no fear. One of the questions Chris asked me as we were going back and forth on this is like, is there such a thing as like healthy fear? You know, how does the fear of the Lord play into this? And, and, and as I was reading through these passages, I, I thought of the, the colloquial phrase FOMO. Anybody know what FOMO means, the acronym FOMO? Somebody tell me. Fear of missing out. The young people all knew, and even some of the people with whiter hair knew. Well done. <laughs> kids today, teens today, my kids, college kids, they live with this constant barrage of social media, of texts, of images, of parties. And they live with this constant barrage of the fear of missing out, Right? They look at social media and it's the fear of why wasn't I invited to that party? Or it's the, if I go to this party, then I might miss out on this other party, right? And it's crippling. It's absolutely crippling to them, this fear of missing out. I think it's fair to say that what Jesus does in Matthew 24 and 25, though, is speaking directly to kind of a healthy version of FOMO. And there's no other healthy version of FOMO, Right? In Matthew 25, the very next chapter, Jesus gives two more examples to sort of clarify what he meant in the Noah story. And you're probably familiar with these. The first is the parable of the ten bridesmaids, in which five bridesmaids are prepared for the bidegroom. They've done the work of preparing, of making sure that their oils, their, that their, their lamps had oil, right? And they're ready for when the bridegroom comes. But five weren't prepared. And eventually the bridegroom does come. And the ones who are prepared are still there and they're present. And to them, he invites them to come in and enter into the home and have this beautiful feast and have this wedding. It's interesting that weddings and feasts are part of both stories. But in this story, the people that got to enjoy the feast aren't the ones who are unprepared. It was the ones who were 
prepared, right? And the five who weren't missed out. Yes, there's fear, but, but the main point is be prepared. Don't miss the feast. Don't miss the bridegroom who will come. And then he tells the parable of the master and the three servants. Again, another familiar story. The master is going on this long trip, and so he takes three of his trusted servants, and he gives each of them a portion of his silver, and he says, use this well in my absence. Be prepared for when I return. And after a certain amount of time, he comes back, and two of his servants have used his money very, very well. They've invested it. They've made good choices. And to them, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he invites them into the feast. But to the third, he says, you wicked servant, you weren't prepared. And he's cast out. He misses out on the feast. He misses out on the relationship. He misses out on so much. Be prepared. Be prepared. Jesus believed he was coming back and he went to these great lengths to tell his followers to be ready, to be prepared, because the stakes are high and you don't want to miss out. But there's a second theme that you see in all of these stories in the New Testament. The apostles believed he was going to return. In Hebrews 9, it says these words, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. In this passage, we see a couple of things. Sin is real. We are all destined to die. Almost everyone does, right? And after that comes judgment. Are you ready? Are you eagerly waiting? He says he's coming to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him, for those who are prepared. Titus 2 says these words. The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. In the Old Testament, every Jewish child knew about the day of the Lord. They looked forward to that with anticipation and celebration. He's saying, we know with hope that this will be a wonderful day for those who are prepared. He says, we are freed to do what? To, to, make, to make us as people committed to doing good deeds. Colossians 3 says this, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. You've died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. That's life. That's hope. That's a promise. And Paul says, in response to that, put to death all the earthly things living in you like lust and drunkenness and greed and anger, and instead, clothe yourself in tenderness and mercy and love and patience, the fruits of the Spirit. Part of what he's saying is, since Christ is your Savior, allow him to also be your Lord, the Lord of your life, the ruler of the life, the the one around whom you shape your life. 
Not only did the apostles believe that Christ would return, the early church believed he was going to return. The early church created these creedal statements like the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed to serve as these kind of sort of constitutional documents of their foundational beliefs about who God was and how he interacted with the world. Most English translations of the Nicene Creed include the following statements. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in his glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom has no end. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Not only were these statements foundational, they, they shaped their lives. They sold everything they had to care for one another, to care for the poor. They, they changed the Roman world because of how well they cared for one another. This shaped their lives. They embraced the good news of Jesus, not only as their Savior, whose death canceled their sin, but also as their Lord, who was their life. I want to go back to Matthew 25 for a minute. We've had these two stories, the bridesmaids, and it's an encouragement to, to be prepared, and the servants. But there's another story, and, it, and it's got scary moments. He tells a third story, but this time it's not a parable, it's a prophecy. But Jesus is talking about his return. Listen to these words from Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people. The shepherd sep separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or, or stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I'll tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I, I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And then after I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're refusing to help me. And they'll go into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. It's a passage that has often been a punch in the gut to me. Honestly, as I look at my own religious patterns, it's a passage that sometimes is used as sort of a social gospel. Like, see, Jesus really you know, just cares about orphans and widows and, and prisoners and we social gospel, right? But in the context, this is right out of Matthew 24 and 25. This is about lordship. This is about Jesus saying, if, you are, if I am really your Lord, your life, your priorities, your time, your attention will focus on the things that my attention is focused on. The things that matter to me will matter to you. That's what lordship really looks like. There's a place to write this down. Christ's invitation is to make him Lord 
and Savior. There, there's not a place to write this down, and, and it's a bold statement, but I'm going to make it. We can't have Jesus as Savior if we don't have Jesus as Lord. It's two sides of the same coin. And I think oftentimes we rush to embrace the one and we're reluctant to embrace the other. I, I know that I am. But friends, that, that's the invitation that's extended to you, to me, to all of us. And there's an urgency to this. I mean, graciously, God has given us agency in this, a role to play, a choice to receive Christ, to receive that salvation. We get to choose if you want to join him in glory, to be at the feast, to hear the words, well done, good and faithful service, to be ushered into the kingdom. We get to choose. But, and this is important, Christ's invitation has an expiration date. We, we get to choose, but only while we can, right? I wish we'd all been ready. Yes, I mean, no one knows when Christ will return, but perhaps even more urgently, no one knows how many days any one of us has on this earth. In the office, Chris likes to joke. We all like to joke a lot about, like, I really need you to understand how to do this just in case you get hit by a bus. <laughs> it's kind of dark humor, um, now that I say it out loud. But we say it regularly. The reality is no one knows when that diagnosis is going to come. No one knows when our heart suddenly just stops. No one knows when that bus will come out of your blind spot and just clock you. Am I trying to use fear-based evangelism? No, but the stakes are high and the invitation is clear. Don't be fearful. Be prepared. Don't miss out. Say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord now while you have the opportunity. Say yes, not, not some sort of fire insurance to avoid hell and get a ticket to heaven. Say yes to allowing Christ to be Lord around whose lives our lives are shaped, who is our life. I remember my kind of big I said yes moment uh, to Jesus. I mean, I had lots and lots of little yeses to Jesus, you know, terrified in a dark youth room watching a Christian horror movie. I laid it on an Easter morning as a teen, having just had the early morning sunrise breakfast. Uh, I remember lots of camp yeses and concert yeses and lots of little yeses. But there's a moment in particular that stands out to me, and you'll remember this moment. Uh, I was in my late, mid-20s. Uh, I, I had been away kind of from faith for quite a while, and it had come back and returned to my faith. Uh, and I had sort of this defining I said yes moment with Jesus. I, I was actually already on staff at a church and realized that I had spent so much of my life sort of with one foot in the door and one foot out, like not committal. Like around this group of friends act this way, around this group of friends act this other way. And I wanted to break that cycle. I just say, Christ, I want you to be my Savior, but I also want you to be my Lord. And I realized I had never been baptized, uh, even though I was on staff at a Baptist church. Shh, don't tell. <laughs> right? So I invited something like 80 of my friends, and some of them weren't followers of Christ. I mean, people from the music industry in which I was involved at the time. I invited them to come to my baptism, and I, I remember getting up, and I was in a white robe, and I looked at this room full of people, and I said, I want you all to know that I'm saying yes to Jesus, and I'm going to spend as much as I can the rest of my life following Jesus, making the decisions I make around what it means to follow Jesus. And then we invited, like, all 80 of these people back to our tiny little, like, bungalow in northeast Minneapolis and just had an amazing party. It's a day that I remember and celebrate, almost like a wedding day. I even made this little plaque that says, Jason Peterson, baptized 2001. Don't show the people at the church I used to work at. <sighs> anyway, 
this little piece of wood. And these few words serve as a monument to God's faithfulness, God's grace, God's patience, but also of my desire to follow Jesus every day as long as I've got days left. Now, lest you think that that's a little too hallmark in that story, I need you to know that while that was an important yes, an important moment, there have been plenty of times in my life, my wife and kids and my parents can attest to the fact that I have not always lived this perfectly. Sometimes I've not even lived this marginally well. The reality is in our journey of following Christ, there are big, big yeses, and there are a series of very small everyday yeses. That's what lordship means. It means waking up and saying, yes, today, Jesus, you are Lord of my life and of my priorities, and continuing to say yes to Christ as Lord. I guess the question I have for you, for you watching at home, wherever you are, is do you have an I said yes story to Jesus, not just, as, not just as Savior, but as Savior and Lord. If, so, if you have, we would love to help you make your monument to that moment, to that decision. We have got these tables right over here, and on them there's very simple cards, and at home you can do these same cards in your notes, where it says simply your name, and either a, a date or an event or, or whatever that moment may have been for you. And, and then a year. Uh, for me, it was baptism, 2001. As I talked to staff, we all had different stories. Chris clearly said, oh, I know exactly when it was. I was sitting on a roof in Juarez, Mexico in college. I was on a missions trip. And that one decision on that roof changed the whole rest of the trajectory of my life. And we've seen the product of that in his life. There are others on staff who said, I don't really have a moment. My life has been a series. I don't remember ever not being a follower of Christ. And so we invited them to really look back and say, was there a moment that you can look back on that was significant? And if not, I mean, some, we have people that have, that as, as we submitted this, they've written back things like, my childhood home, 1968. That's beautiful. That's a life of faithfulness, right? So take a moment, and you can fill out those cards, and you'll, you'll take one of these pieces of wood, and we will inscribe whatever you've put on your card, the pieces that will go on to these with your story, your name, your proclamation. And then we are going to make these massive <laughs> monuments that will be out in this hallway that, that are a picture of our body that is joined not by the journeys we've been on. That's not what unites us, because we come at this from lots of different angles. What unites us is the fact that we are all in Christ. It is a picture of the feast that will happen at the end of times in heaven. It, it's a glimpse of the Lamb's book of life. Where are you at? Maybe you prayed a prayer as a young person from a place of fear, from a movie or a book or a fire and brimstone talk. For me, it was a thief in the night. For somebody else I was talking to, it was, you know, it was the, the Left Behind series. Maybe you, know, you chose, you know, if you answered the question why Jesus, you'd say, so I don't go to hell. That's okay. It's how many of us came to faith. We would encourage you not to stay there. There is so much more that we want to invite you into. This can be your I said yes to all of the gospel message. To Christ as Savior, but also Christ as Lord, who can live you, give you the life that we actually is the best life for us. Maybe you were baptized as an infant and confirmed as a teen, but you've sort of just been going through the motions, attending church because your spouse thinks you should, or for the sake of the kids, or whatever. That's okay. This, this could be your I said yes moment. Maybe you've lived your whole life faithfully as a follower of Christ, and you can't really point to a big moment where you made Christ Lord and Savior. 
To you, I'd say, well done. Well done. You did better than me. I've given Christ way too many opportunities to make me an example of his grace. But even for you, this can be that moment where you can celebrate and affirm with all of the rest of us that you are in Christ, that he is your Lord and your Savior. For whatever amount of time you have left, you want to live the rest of your life for him with Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would invite you to take some time to think about what are the words that you could write down that would signify that desire that we could celebrate with you. Maybe you've never said yes to God. This can be your I said yes moment. I would invite you to take this time to say yes to God in, in your sermon notes and on your sermon notes online. There's a little prayer that we've included. Those of you who are regulars will recognize uh, this prayer. is something that we as a community say on a regular basis when we receive communion. But in this case, it's personalized. It's a prayer that you can pray in this moment or in the upcoming days. Say, Christ, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And the words, they aren't magical. This prayer isn't magical. In fact, you don't even have to use these words if they're helpful. The point is to say to God, yes, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I need you to save me. And I want you to be my Lord. And maybe it feels weird to do that all by yourself, either in this space or watching at home. We would love to invite you into a conversation. If you're here tonight... I'm going to be here. There'll be other staff here who would love to speak with you. If you're watching at home, I would invite you to reach out. Let someone know the journey you're on. We'd be thrilled and honored to pray with you and for you in this moment. If this is you, and this is your I said yes moment, that's awesome, well done. I would invite you to fill out your card or to simply send me an email with your name and your information, today's date, and write, I said yes. As your event. I said yes on this date for the very first time. We would love to follow up with you. So include your you know, email address and phone number so we could follow up with you and celebrate with you on this big yes and also equip you to grow and take that next step in following Christ. Write your email address and phone number. We're going to touch you in the next couple of days. As we conclude today, I want to invite all of you that are present here to join us in this exercise or for all who want to, for all for whom this is real. I, this is not a pressure situation. We want this to be something between you and God that we can share with others in the community. I imagine a day when kids who have signed this thing can bring their kids and say, there's my moment. There's my moment on the wall that we can celebrate together this peace. So we're going to take a few minutes. I invite you to pray and reflect and then respond by filling out the cards over on the table. Take a tile, put your card and the tile into a bag and uh, or into the envelope and we will do the rest. The band's going to play a few songs, and we invite you to take this time to reflect. Was there a moment that was a big yes moment to you? And how can we celebrate, all of us, that we are in Christ? There's a picture <clears throat> that we receive at the end of this book, the gospel that, that we've said you know, is truth. And, and it's a picture of that last day. As I said earlier, the Jews believed that the day of the Lord was coming, that resurrection would come, and that is going to be a joyful day. And this book of Revelation, which in itself is so filled with this cataclysmic language, ends with a couple of passages that I want to read in closing. Then I saw the new Jerusalem and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down 
God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. The one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. For all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children, sons and daughters. It's chapter 21. And chapter 22 says this. And the angel showed me a river with the waters of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, the fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they'll see his face and his name written on their foreheads. There'll be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them. They will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, everything you've heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God, who inspires his prophets, has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. It's a beautiful picture of the day of the Lord, the bridegroom coming take his bride and bring her into the feast. A feast that lasts for eternity. Don't miss out. We pray for us. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your word. It's complicated. It feels so foreign to so many of us living in 21st century America. When so often the pictures we see of the church don't line up with the picture you painted God, we, we repent of that. And Holy Spirit, I would invite you, I would implore you right now in this moment to speak to me, to speak to the hearts and the minds of all who are hearing this, all who will hear this. Draw them to yourselves. Soften their hearts to your movement, to your spirit, to your invitation. Move, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.